This is Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. Welcome. I just got back from the Byzantine Studies Conference in Vancouver, Canada, which was a wonderful opportunity to see many of you again. Um, there's never enough time at these things to speak with everyone as you know as much as you want, but it's great to hear everyone's papers and even say hi in the hallway. It's also wonderful to see how many people have benefited from the podcast and they came up to me and told me, uh, which is wonderful. I can even see it in the numbers of downloads. They're still going up. Um, of course, oddly, uncannily perhaps, yeah, people seem to know a whole bunch of things about me uh, from the podcast, and even if I don't know who they are, uh, but that was inevitable, I suppose. Also, uh, thanks to uh, Dimitris Kralis, who was the local organizer, and his entire team there at Simon Fraser. They did a wonderful job. Um, Kralis is at least a two-time guest on the podcast, so you can go see the episodes that I've recorded with him. On a lark a couple of weeks ago, I began to translate the Roman history of Nikiforos Grigoras. Grigoras was the leading intellectual of the 14th century. He was a philosopher, Platonist, also mathematician, astronomer, uh, just all around um, top intellectual. And he wrote this very long history, which is 1,700 pages. And I don't know if I'm ever going to finish it. Uh, but it was fun to start translating it. He's a very good writer. Uh, he's not a terribly good historian, but he is very intent that you understand the idea that he's trying to communicate, and he does a pretty good job of it. And so his, his prose is kind of fun to read, uh, and I just like the challenge of putting it into English, uh, which is not something that was really likely to happen, um, not anytime soon at least. Um, and as it gets to contemporary affairs, um, it's a much more important uh, primary historical source. Now, Grigoras was also, as I said, a mathematician and astronomer. And one of the things that he did uh, was to calculate the uh, degree by which the uh, then Julian calendar had deviated from uh, what he took to be its, the, you know, the, the correct alignment of calendar and solar year. Um, and he did it correctly uh, at the time, and he put the case before the emperor and the court and the Holy Synod. And they checked his math, and they said, yeah, yeah the math looks right, uh, but this is just too much trouble. Uh, we, we can't realistically expect everyone to change the calendar, uh, you know, so we'll just carry on, uh, which is what happened, and the calendar didn't, um, wasn't corrected until centuries later when, um, on an initiative of the uh, Church of Rome, we got the Gregorian uh, calendar. Not named after Grigoras, but the Pope at the time. Uh, otherwise, it would have been called the Gregorian calendar. Anyway, Grigoras as a historian is also interesting in the way in which he um, marks time. Instead of giving precise dates, he likes sometimes astronomical observations, as in around the time of the year when the such and such star began to rise in, you know, where in the constellation of wherever. For the most part, he follows this classical convention of saying something like in the spring or in the fall or not long after that or many years after that, not telling us exactly how many years. So this brings us to one of the most fascinating topics in historical study and cultural study, which is what we're going to be discussing today, 
which is how people mark, measure, perceive, experience, understand time. And you know, we're not going to get into theories of physics and you know cosmology about what time is exactly, um, though some ancient and medieval thinkers did that, but rather talk more about the cultural mechanisms by which societies process, measure, and experience time. And I found the ideal guest uh, with whom to discuss this topic, um, which is Jesse Torgerson, who's a professor at Wesleyan University. Now, Jesse has published a long, very close reading of the chronographia of uh, Theophanes, uh, known in some publications as Theophanes the Confessor. I'm not sure he was that person, but a different Theophanes, but be that as it may. Jesse's book makes very interesting and important arguments, and it, I think it will take our field a while to digest it and process them. Uh, but as is the nature with all close readings of texts or images, it's difficult to translate that effectively into an audio medium, um, especially when you have arguments that are dealing with a number of different passages and the manuscripts and how to divide them up philologically, and that's, it's kind of very difficult to, um, to convey. And yet, there's clearly a very engaging and, uh, and stimulating mind at work there, and, and I thought it would be f fascinating to have him on for a discussion of a topic that is like at the core of the Chronicle of Theophanies, which is the measurement of time and how exactly Theophanies organized that. And eventually we decided it would be just interesting to have a conversation about time, about all of the different political, natural, scientific, religious, and cultural ways in which uh, time was measured and experienced, ranging from the calendar of the church to the tax cycle uh, to the um, you know, physical and mathematical sciences, all of which converged in East Roman society to produce these multiple overlapping layers of time measurement. In fact, a very dense matrix of overlapping calendars and calculations. There was no way that we could get through everything that we hoped to. Not enough time! You see, there it is again. Uh, but we go through enough to hopefully convey a sense of just how rich uh, this area of research is and relatively untapped. Um, not, not to get too far down the rabbit hole of esoteric publications here, but there really is only one book on Byzantine systems of chronology, and it's very, very old and in French, and kind of the physical copy is kind of falling apart too. Ravages of time again. And um, there is a lot of potential for, you know, rethinking the matrices of time that East Roman society lived in. I'll stop there. Many thanks to Medievalos.net for reposting this episode. And without any further delay, here's my conversation with Jesse. Hello, Jesse. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was going to start with a bad pun like, it's about time I had you on. It's literally about time that I'm having you on. <laughs> It's a timely meeting. I hope we're not going to do time puns straight through this discussion. <clears throat> okay. So let's assume that our audience is already familiar with general relativity theory, Lorentz equations, all of this. Sure. And of course. I recently read Rovelli's Order of Time. I don't know if you... So, so my background is in physics a long, long time ago. I actually I didn't know that. 
Yeah, of course. I, I did general relativity theory in the summer of 87, I think, at Bryn Mawr. Wow. And I could do them. I remember that I could work with those equations. I, I don't remember it anything about it right now and i only made it halfway through the book i just mentioned because at some point it's like okay i'm out <laughs> so let's talk about some things most people will understand here all right so time this is very important and we often take our understanding and our, our ordering of time for granted so why don't you tell us some of the things that we take for granted about time and we're in order to understand you know, how people experience time in pre-modern cultures, we have to abstract from these things a little bit, but so it's important to be aware of them. So why don't you tell us about some of those? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, like you said, this is this is um, uh, a really uh, fun general topic that I love thinking about um, when I'm trying to read ancient texts. And the more I've taught, especially historical texts, I've started to think of of uh, time as both a problem and a really great solution for you know students but but also scholars um, because it's so central a premise to the way that we think about everything about our daily lives um and so it's something that we carry with us into our reading of the past texts you know every time we don't remember to forget that stuff and mm. sort of reimagine um, uh, the um, the sort of temporal regimes, um, uh, the presumptions about time, the practices of time, the experiences of time of um, past world. So yeah, when I when I teach text, if I have if I have time in in uh, a class, you know, I try to you know get students to brainstorm about you know like okay, what do you take for granted about time, right? And a lot of those things are embedded in say our cell phones, um, uh, where you know, I can set alarms, I can set reminders, um, I always know uh, what time it is. Um, uh, you know, I also know what year it is, uh, right? There's, um, there's almost no disagreement um, uh, between different countries about what year we're going to work with. Um, uh, I actually uh, grew up, um, I went to high school in one of the few places that maintains a distinct uh, annual calendar from um, the presumed sort of common era, um, which is Taiwan. Um, so many people don't know this, but um, uh, Taiwan has this uh, calendar called the, the Mingua calendar um, that is that counts. It uses it's the you know it's the Gregorian calendar, but it 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 um, counts years from the founding um, or the beginning of the Republic of China in 1912. Um, uh, and then sort of followed that regime when it fled to Taiwan in 1949. And so, um, you know, this is the 112th year um, uh, of the Republic of China. I graduated from high school in Taiwan in the 88th year. Um, and so, you know, there's there's sort of it's one of the few countries in the world where there's uh, sort of like two systems of dates where, right, um, of right. course, the common era is used, but also in official documents, you date things according to the, you know, the year of the Republic. Um, so, you know, there are some places where where um, the year isn't taken for granted or or isn't just one thing, but almost everywhere, um, right? This is 2023, um, as far as everyone um, uh, presumes, um, right? We also so we don't usually think about why that's the case or, or sort of what are the implications in that, unless again we're in a history class and debating whether or not we should use ADBC or you know CEBCE. Um, 
So, you know, that's that's for me uh, a couple of the the really big presumptions. One thing that I think is interesting when when I stop to think about this is, you know, again, for people probably listening to this podcast on their cell phones, right, even in the sort of presumed uh, um, stability of the time that you can get, the atomic time that you can get from your cell phone, um, that's based on still sort of uh, um, embedded uh, um, formulas for the relativity of time, right? Because, of course, uh, mm, you know, yes. time moves differently, actually, for all of the satellites um, that are sort of bouncing those signals back and forth for us. So it's, you know, if you get, the se- you know, a second to, to stop and think through it, you know, I think you start to realize, like, wait a minute, um, you know, this sort of stable time that I presume is actually relative. Um, and then I think that's a way that I like to try to, to get myself, to get students um, to start thinking about, you know, a past age where, you know, even as early as, um, you know, the 19th or as recent as the 19th century, um, you can't take uh, universal time um, for granted. Uh, it's not it's not established. And so when we read um, not just ancient or medieval texts, but even early modern and many modern texts, um, we do have to, you know, stop and think, okay, you know, wait a minute, how is how is time being conceived? How is time being experienced? Um, and and really what we start to discover is that time has to be made. Um, time, time isn't taken for, you know, can't be taken for granted by everyone. Someone has to construct the time that we can all agree upon and use. Yes, I remember reading a book called Speed a few years ago, which was kind of a theoretic, a kind of a cultural studies examination of um, you know, the different perceptions of the speed at which we do things. And yeah. There was an interesting chapter on the trains in the 19th century. Now, trains in the 19th century were one of the key mechanisms that established our time system because suddenly every place in the United States, which is like across what today we consider three time zones, has to be yeah. coordinated so that the train schedules right. work. Right. 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 And that's how you construct a single unitary time of, uh, you know, regimen across a country that big. Um, and all the time zones had to be worked out and all of this. Yeah. I remember that there were all of these theorists who were arguing that the speed at which trains, now we're talking locomotives of the 19th century, right? <laughs> the speed at which they traveled, what, like the human body couldn't possibly handle that. <laughs> and that people would just become like hysterical or lose, like dementia would set in. It would, it would just, anyway, it's hilarious reading those things. But yes. <laughs> The train schedules were one yeah. of the chief ways of, uh, you know, instituting our time regimens. Right. And and you're, you're also right to point out that there's a politics behind all of this. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. you mentioned Taiwan. Yeah. But of course, if you think about it, all of our systems for dating, like years, for example, are political. Well, all of them, right? Like the days of the week, the the months, names, right? Like they all have come from political regimes, but also the right. years. And you said you had debates in class about eight, um, AD, just a BC, AD and yeah. BCE. Okay. What what yeah. debates exactly do you have about that? Like what what, what is the being debated? Yeah. So I, I usually take the, um, intentionally take the, the unpopular opinion, which is that we should keep using AD, BC. You know, just I do too. Of, I, I yeah. do use those. Yes. Right, right. And I actually, you know, I do, I do actually have good reasons and I do, I do use them still in my writing, you know, but, yes. but for the students, you know, it's, it's always a sort of like, what, what in the world, you know, 
why is this um, sort of educated professor so so you know retrograde right. or whatever? Um, you know, but you know, my my argument is is usually um, you know, uh, you know, we're just we're just changing, you know, CE is just changing the label on this on this exactly. thing. Exactly. So as long as it's still the thing, we should keep calling it what it is. Um, and if we I want entirely to entirely agree. Yes. If we want a common era, we should we should actually start over, come up with new logics, and then agree on it. But but you know, don't just change the name and yeah, pretend like foundation of Rome or something like that. Sure. <laughs> right. Um, so I've had exactly the same um discussions, but with colleagues who look at me like I have a second head growing out of the side of my neck, you know, when I say <laughs> these things, but it's not the common era, it's a Christian era, and you you like you would never agree by you i mean like anyone who advocates for the ce model that we use like the muslim the muslim hijra dating system and call it common like you would say that's not common right and so yeah. why accept this one that way like it's it's not common it's like anyway whatever yeah okay yeah no and i think i mean this you know just to to throw one more thing in there i think this this idea of commonality is is really interesting and you know i think we might get into this later but um you know it it historically um as far as i've been able to you know tell and i'm not a specialist in the history of the history of time um but uh, right it is it is sort of political um regimes that that sort of drive temporal regimes um but uh you know in you know so i always had this presumption that okay of course you know the modern you know imposition of the common era and also sort of greenwich time that's of course about colonialism and an empire um whether or not we call mm -hmm. it empire um but then in, in finally looking at like okay when when does sort of contemporary sort of global time actually get established who does it you know and i always presumed okay this must be a sort of like immediately post-world war ii or whatever you know and that that does play a factor, um, but the thing that actually pushed uh, universal time all the way down to that train schedule level um, precision um, to the millisecond um, was apparently um, broadcasting, right? So what what Empire couldn't do for time, right. TV and entertainment <laughs> finally did, um, is, to, is to convince the globe to have one universal um, time so that we could coordinate our sitcoms um, yes. uh, is is kind of funny to think about what what actually binds us together as humans um, uh, is a, a whole different story of time. I remember in Greece in like the 70s. Now, TV started broadcasting around 6 p.m. Sure. <laughs> there were there were two channels. There was a state channel and the army channel. Oh, don't ask. <laughs> But I remember that shows just didn't begin, uh, quote, on time. Uh huh. It, it was uh -huh. kind of vaguely within some, you know, parameter. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes they just run over or they just add 15 minutes of ads because they would never break a show for ads. Uh huh. And, you know, you just kind of wait until the next thing started. Yeah. Um, this, you know, Later on at night, like I think the the schedule got destabilized from the printed one, uh -huh. <laughs> as as it got later and later. Anyway, <laughs> okay. So there's some other interest. We'll get to some of these other uh, topics, such as like what's the smallest unit of time that someone yeah a thousand years ago could work with. Oh, interesting. Like, yeah, like you know, I, in the texts, it's really like the hour. Yeah, like, it doesn't get more fine than that. Right. Um, and the hours are variable, uh, right? Mm -hmm. As you know that, because 
they divided the daylight into 12 segments, regardless of how long the day actually was. So winter yeah. hours are shorter, uh, summer hours are longer. Anyway, whatever. Okay, so these are some general issues that we got to keep in mind. Um, why don't you tell us about the different kinds of, sort of rhythms of time that people like, well, let's say a thousand years ago, but at any time kind of experience. So when we're talking about time, what kinds of experiences are we talking about? Because it's not just dating or, or you know, putting a number to the time, which is a fairly recent sort of scientific thing. But what are the other kinds of time that people experience? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, that, that word that you just used, I think is, is really the key is, is that, right. It's, it's, you know, not about a number, it's about an experience. Um, I think that's, that's maybe the, the, the most yeah. important um, sort of premise is that, you know, you're, you're working with um, a day um, and you said, you know, the hours, maybe the sort of smallest unit, um, but you know, the, the stable unit is really the day, um, uh, right. That you can, you can then sort of calculate from, um, sort of, you know, bigger and then, and then sort of divide that thing up. But, um, the thing that you can agree upon with people is, um, the sun going up and down, um, and a new, a new period, um, starting. So I think it's, yeah, it's that, it's that kind of experiential, um, side. And so, you know, in, in my, uh, in my reading and, and, um, you know, please, please add in, um, it's, uh, it's, it's more that, uh, seasonal rhythm, um, that then starts to structure or really that you see in text structuring um, how people operate. And, you know, seasonal includes not just sort of the farming seasons, but then kind of everything that that sort of derives from that. Right. So farming seasons lead to feasts and times of of um, sort of withholding. Um, so fasting when there's not when there's not as much food. Um, uh, and, you know, and then, of course, uh, you know, social um, groupings of people, political groupings of people start to stabilize those. Those become festivals. They become religious festivals. Right. And so it's it's those I think it's that that nexus that's really, you know, cross-culturally the the sort of like standard thing that you can look for in in sort of the human experience of time is that you know combination of a yearly cycle and then the ways in which the human experience of that yearly cycle gets uh sort of reified into festivals um and patterns of uh feasting and fasting and celebration or mourning yeah and this is a basic template that you find in all mostly agricultural societies. And on top of that, you have sort of superstructures of additional rhythms of time. So for example, you have political time um, right. that's superimposed on that. So what does that look like? Uh, what kinds of experiences does that reflect? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it depends on, I think, what, uh, what you know, time, what era um, we're talking about, what, um, uh, what group, um, but, you know, political time is, uh, you know, can be thought of in two ways, uh, in, in, in my understanding. Uh, the first um, is, you know, the city. So so when we look at, at sort of syntheses of ancient times and um, Ptolemy, the, the first century um, AD, um, you know, mathematician, um, et cetera, uh, right? And when he tries to sort of get times in order, it's he looks at, at sort of uh, different cities, right, and sort of harmonizes um, uh, the, the civic calendars of the year so that you can, you know, identify, you know, what day it is in, um, you know, in, uh, Damascus's calculation, Caesarea, Rome, Alexandria, and sort of, you know, understand those, have those sorted out. So there's that kind of political time in the sense of the polis, 
Um, and then there's and then there's the sort of you know the bigger question of how do you calculate um, successions of years and that um, and you know uh, I could be blanking but but really I can't think of any other ancient system um, uh, besides uh, counting um, years of rulers sort of successions of rulers besides the the Olympiads and it could be like completely blanking um, but. But I think that's, you know, that's that's pretty universally true. It's certainly, you know, rulers are the standard way of of doing time. And so then that, you know, that can be maybe a civic ruler, but then, you know, uh, your city is small. You know, there's it's just one among many cities. So, you know, if you have, you know, the ruler of a kingdom, Babylon, um, Egypt, et cetera, you know, you can start to establish, um, you know, long durée time by, you know, putting together, you know, this ruler ruled for 18 years. This ruler were ruled for 12 and then start to establish, you know, longer chronologies through the successions of kings. So that's where, you know, as we were saying earlier, this the, the sort of like deep um, political nature of counting years, I think, is is really kind of baked into the, the human experience. Yes, I remember that passage in I think it's Thucydides, who's like one of the first people to try to coordinate the different um year systems that were used like in argos and athens and sparta and so forth yeah and yeah. one uses kings kings who ruled for many many years athens has eponymous archons who rule for one year i right. think argos uses the priestess of hera like yeah and and here's the crazy thing and oh also the olympiad which is a four-year cycle and so you say right. the second year of olympiad 17 or whatever yeah and the crazy thing is that each of those annual calendars probably begins at a different point in the year. Right, right, right. So right. it's always approximate because they don't all yeah. start on like January 1st or something, right? Right. Which is a Roman consular year convention that we have. Right. And so I, I would add to the political dimension the tax cycles, like especially for the right. people we study, and the so, so Byzantine year, the late Roman year, begins on the first of September, right? And that's the the tax year. It's first of September to thirty first of August, and I think you like you pay in three annual installments, mm -hmm. like for the most part. And so the year is also structured according to those payments. Like you got to make yeah. that payment. Yeah. 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 Um, and all these things are superimposed. So I remember reading in uh, Paul Cosman, I think he's a professor at Harvard who works on the Seleucids. <laughs> no one expects the Seleucids to come <laughs> in a podcast on Byzantium. <laughs> and and I read this in his book on the, the Elephant Kings, but he wrote a subsequent book called Time and Its Adversaries, which I haven't read yet. But if I if I understand correctly. He's talking about, so the Seleucids appear to have been the first people, the first regime to establish a continuous sequence of counting years from like 312, I think the Seleucid era begins. And, you know, like, so there's year one, two, three, and, and onward. And yeah. this continued to be used into late antiquity. And some groups continued to use it well into the Middle Ages. I think the Syrian Orthodox Church continued to use it into the high middle ages huh. um i could be mistaken maybe they were using the diocletianic era of the martyrs which is a similar kind of system anyway 
Yeah. So yeah. the Seleucids, great innovators there. <laughs> They're not remembered for much. <laughs> no, but I mean, but I think, you know, you're, you're, I think leaning into, um, you know, what for me is the, you know, a big sort of era shifter, if we're talking about, um, you know, in the sort of Mediterranean world, the uh, a shift in, in how time is thought about, which is the, you know, um, the, the, the conquest of Alexander, right? And it's, it's then that, mm. um, uh, um, you know, fourth century um, BC uh, change, you know, complete sort of reworking of the the sort of political dynamics of the Eastern Mediterranean um, that then caused, uh, you know, this this sort of thinking about more universal chronologies, right? It's the, um, uh, it's that sort of post-Alexander, the Hellenistic era um, that we get um, these compilations of, um, you know, the Greek translations um, by Barossus and Manetho of, you know, mm -hmm. Babylonian and Syrian um, tallies of kings, Egyptian tallies of pharaohs. Um, and so there's this, you know, um, uh, sort of Napoleon-esque, um, uh, you know, desire to sort of synthesize and codify uh, these, these cultures that have been conquered and then sort of establish um, that, uh, that chronology um, for the present that can, that can sort of be, um, be universalized. And so I think, yeah, that's, that I think is, is a change and then introduces these different options of other sort of ways of, of tallying and right. So like, you know, lines of priests, um, which of course had been around before, but then yeah, the Roman consuls, um, uh, et cetera, are, are also options, um, in addition to, um, to different kingly lines. Yeah. It's interesting that you should mention Barossus and Manetho, uh, because there is in in their work, especially I think Barossa's like an um, astronomical background, like those cultures, Egypt and Babylon, where they came from. Um, so they calculated time also in like cosmic or, you know, ast astronomical terms, whatever. They And they had very, very large time scales in the past. Right. Um, and I, I, I talked about that separately with Jennifer Westerfeld in a different um, episode where she was talking about like the reception of ancient Egypt, mm -hmm. you know, where Egypt is good because it kind of refutes Greek ideas of the past. Uh -huh. And and the Egyptians are these sort of barbarians, but but also more wise and so forth. Yeah. But they're just their time scales are just a little bit too big <laughs> <laughs> for the Old Testament, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's also scientific time. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so you want to say something about the kind of scientific background that later Romans would have had for understanding time? I would love to. And I'd also love to hear um, any of your thoughts as well. But I think, right, that's I mean, that I think is the the other side of this, um, you know, the 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 political side of time um, is that um, it's actually the case that the, the sort of need to use those political regimes to do actual math <laughs> starts to take over, you know, mm. so you, you kind of alluded to this earlier. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the, the funny things um, that I, you know, uh, it wasn't a discovery, but it was sort of realizing this conundrum when I, when I actually started to work with Byzantine chronographers and actually sort of lay out for myself their way of calculating things, you know, you realize Right. What do you do when you have a ruler who reigns for three months? You know, does that guy get a year right. in this sort of chronology of successions um, and take it away from the, you know, the last couple of months of the last guy and, you know, the first couple of months of the next one? Or do you just get rid of them three months? You don't count. 
you know, we've got a longer reign before and after you. And often that what happens, you know, like someone who, uh, you know, they will know was a king at a certain time just doesn't get to show up in the chronology. And that's where you see. And the reason being, right, ultimately what they need is they, they want to be able to calculate. Um, and so you need something that gives you that sort of stable unit of a year to be able to do those calculations. And the thing that you primarily want to calculate, right, are these um, astronomical phenomena, you know, in, in later centuries, um, in the medieval period, you know, that that came to be mostly debated over, you know, this question of when, you know, when do we have our annual feast? When is Easter? When's Pascha? Um, but then, you know, as well as in, you know, those periods and earlier periods, you know, how do we harmonize astronomical phenomena or observations that are made, you know, by this civilization with our civilization? You know, are we looking at the same comet? Um, uh, how do you know that? So you've got to have those stable calculations. And yeah, it's, it's, I think, um, you know, it's, it's the practice of, of science and specifically astronomy that ends up um, making those political successions have to be normalized to something that ultimately is, is not a true history, um, right, of, of who's actually reigning at any, um, at any given year in the past. Yes, the math sometimes gets very complicated. And I, I think, in a scientific sense, there were people who were capable of calculating time fairly exactly. So unless I'm mistaken, from Ptolemy's tables, it was possible to understand that there are different time zones. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Like, yeah. Obviously, yeah. right? Yeah. So you know that Antioch and Constantinople and Rome are not all simultaneously in the same time. And I suspect that we had, so we have at least one Byzantine figure who I think used this like in practice, because, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, normally what difference would this make? And yeah. this is Leo, the uh, philosopher in the ninth century, who yeah. apparently devised the optical telegraph. So this is a way of sending signals via right. uh, fire, fire signals, um, from mountaintop to mountaintop or whatever. And I think if you're using Greek fire to light those flames, <laughs> they're very visible. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was based on a system of hours so that mm -hmm. if you lit a message at one end, the Eastern end, at a particular time, and the message managed to make it to Constantinople within an hour, that they would know then, oh, it corresponds to this message. So you have a choice of 12 messages. Yeah. But there's a time difference, which means uh -huh. that that hour is really an hour, 20 minutes. Uh-huh. Nice. Like, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Anyway, and we actually have accounts of this being used in practice. Now, I it's also been doubted. <laughs> like, like, I've read articles that say, no, this couldn't possibly have worked. Um, I think there was actually an attempt, uh, <laughs> inevitably, in um, 19th century uh, Britain to experiment with it to re to recreate the phenomenon yes to see if you could send a fire signal from i don't know london to scotland or whatever nice yeah um and apparently it didn't i don't know it didn't work or something like that but whatever <laughs> um so the fog the fog wrecked it yeah. <laughs> yes um anyway so that is the most refined use of scientific time that i'm aware of at least. Yeah. But yeah. you mentioned the solar and lunar calendars. So 
when I tried once to figure out why Dionysius the Lesser, mm -hmm. okay, not a household name, <laughs> right? But yeah, um, we use his quote technology right yep. all the time. Yep. It's like, like how many of us can name the people who devised the vaccine that we all took so many times, right? Right. Right. But those people, those people should be known by everyone. Anyway, yeah. but you know, yeah. we, we yeah. okay. So Dionysus the Lesser is the guy who basically came up with the AD system that we use, in the sense that he decided that the year that we call AD one is that one. Yeah. And and he decided why that is. Okay. And I tried to figure out why he picked that year. Uh-huh. And the math quickly got so complicated. I was left in awe of what he was doing. Yeah. Right. Do you know what he was trying to do? Like in detail? I I cannot describe it. No. Oh, I'm not sure that I can describe it either. Um, so let me, let me try. So he was using, so you've got your solar years. You've got, so you, what he wanted to do is align year of creation. Right. With birth of jesus christ yeah but the number of years between them had to be for convenience sake and also because symmetry and harmony are nice right yep uh, perfectly divisible by yeah. the number of lunar cycles yeah using the lunar cycle system that he was using yeah and the indiction cycle which you're going to tell us about in a bit <laughs> And so creation had to be in the morning of September 1st of yeah. whatever year, 5,509, what we would call 5,509 BC. Yeah. So that then the year in which Jesus is born is year one of the indiction cycle that begins then and the lunar cycle that begins then. And like, they all have to align. Yeah. Yeah. And not because there's like historical proof in the new Testament that he was born in that year. Right? Close right. enough is good enough. Right. 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 It's incredibly complicated. Right. Like, I don't think I could, anyway, I'd have to go read a bunch of books to anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so he was doing some incredible math with all of these cycles um, oh, why don't you tell us what an indiction year is? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get there in a second because I think, I think this, um, uh, the indiction beautifully, um, uh, uh, coincides with, with what you're getting at, but I want to, um, uh, I want to add in one, one thing for, it occurred to me as we were speaking that, um, the, the one person who we really should mention, um, before we leave the, the sort of scientific study of time is, is Aristotle. Um, uh, and I think, uh, you know, your, your point about, about Leo, um, the mathematician or Leo, the philosopher, um, uh, and his calculations is that, um, you know, one continuity from, uh, you know, Greek, uh, thinking, um, uh, you know, Roman thinking, Hellenistic, Byzantine, medieval, um, you know, through all of these centuries, you know, is the sort of the Arist the presence of Aristotle, um, and his, his sort of approach to, mm -hmm. to knowledge and science, um, in, the, the sort of pedagogy um, in, in the curriculum, uh, you know, and so, you know, Aristotle's idea in, in um, physics of time being the measure of motion, you know, is this um, uh, absolute uh, sort of premise 
um, for kind of all of this um, uh, scientific approach, um, right? That that ultimately you're you're measuring time is measuring something moving, um, and and you know, and then our coordination of those different movements allows us to come up with something like um, a universal time, right? And then ultimately, universal time has to be that coordination of of movement. Um, I think that right that um, shifts in that practice of of Dionysius and, and others, uh, right? And, and you know, um, I I cannot again not a specialist, but in my sort of um, uh, amateur understanding of the sort of the history of uh, temporal regimes in the Mediterranean, you know, the sixth century does uh, sort of have a bit of a shift here, and I think that's the shift between, um, you know, time for the sake of those calculations into, um, uh, you know, this, this idea that uh, Simon Goldhill's recent book on, um, which he calls the Christian invention of, or sorry, the, the invention of Christian time um, gets at, which is that, that time not only has to work mathematically, but time also has to mean something. Um, and I think that's, you know, uh, fits the point that you're making about about Dionysus's work that, you know, they're going to make those calculations work and they, they are really clever um, arithmetists and they figure out ways to make them make sense if you can sort of slow down and follow their thinking, but that they're being driven by this interest to also find a sort of, you know, a larger logic, um, you know, we might even say a larger um, logos in uh that uh accounting of time and that's where right you know bringing together the um you know the 19 year sort of lunar cycle the 28 year um uh repeating solar cycle you know and then creating these massive 532 year um uh tables of of synchronicity um you know is you know what's driving that is um exactly that sort of um uh impetus to get at the the sort of harmony, not just of sort of planets moving in motion around each other, um, but also of you know the entire sort of cycles of uh, the known universe, coinciding with um, you know understandings about um, divinity and divinity's relationship to um, to the world to the universe, um, and that's really I think um, something that that to me seems different about um about these you know some of these sixth century writers and then and then that sort of shows up um as we move forward um one of the texts that i i uh <laughs> always i feel like sort of demonstrates this point is the you know the what's called the you know variously the paschal chronicle or the chronicum pascale um which is this uh seventh century chronicle um from constantinople um and reads sort of like you know, someone, uh, you know, with historical interests and um, these sort of computistical interests, just like geeking out yes. Um, yes. Uh, about the ability to put these two things together. Um, and it's 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 such a weird text. But if you just sort of embrace the weirdness and just think of this guy as, you know, the sort of stereotypical dude in his mom's basement, you know, he's just, you know, he's giving you the history. And then it's like, oh, my God, guys, like, do you realize, look, I can calculate back, you know, in the year Constantine died, Easter was on April 3rd. Um, uh, <laughs> awesome. You know, anyway, back to the story, you know, and he just has all of these aside. So I think that's right. I mean, that that um, uh, that accomplishment of, of creating these big mathematical tables and then sort of realizing, wait a minute, if we can do that, 
there has to be sort of some meaning to this whole thing. And then trying to sort of, you know, coordinate that with what we know about the past really starts to come out. Yes, that's an extraordinary text. And it's exactly as you put it. It's you're reading a chronicle where the author sometimes stops and says, and now let's do the math. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Never. Nowhere else. Um, you know, welcome to Byzantium. kids. Um, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, the so the Eastern Empire doesn't adopt Dionysius's, um, uh, you know, uh, dating system, the AD system. Right. And Dionysius exiguous, the lesser, he moves, I think, to Rome and it, it very slowly and gradually gets picked up in the West um, and doesn't really become established in like the 10th, 11th century. Right. Um, in the East, they used the date from creation. So, mm -hmm. right. And so in all of our chronicles, when they want to mention what year it was, it's the year from creation. Yeah. And I, just for a minute, I mean, I think the audience should just pause and think what it would what it means that that, that a, a culture, a political regime is dating all of their events from what they understand to be the beginning of the universe. Right, right. 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 That, so the dates are always like in the year 6000 and something. Right. They're always in that range. I, yeah. I just find it, it just kind of blows my mind a little bit that, that they were thinking that way. Yeah. But every date, like if you wanted to specify a day, right, there's the year. But then, you know, the more detail you get, you, you start getting into these Roman calendar systems. Um, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Like, what's the basic template of the Roman calendar? Most of us are familiar because we still use it. Sure. Um, and like, what's an indiction cycle? Because th these are kind of late antique refinements or additions to this whole system. And let me just say, just to get out of the way, that the Romans named the days of the week. They numbered them. Right. First, second, third, fourth, etc. And that system, I believe, survives only in Greece and Portugal. Okay. Right. Um, with a, with Christian additions, right? So obviously, um, uh, Saturday, yeah, Sabbath, and so forth. Um, but uh, the other days are mostly the Roman system. In other countries, you know, like in English, we use the names of the Norse gods for some reason. I, yeah. I don't know yeah. why exactly, but anyway. Um, yeah. But so beyond the week. What are we looking at in terms of Roman calendar structuring of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great, a great transition. And we still have got to get, get to those indiction cycles. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, just to to sort of um, uh, give it as, as quickly as possible, um, uh, this also is another sort of really important, um, I think, um, for the history of humanity sort of premise to this discussion is uh, to remember that that months are, are a uh, sort of lunar phenomenon, right? So so when, and we didn't really talk about this in, in the initial discussion about sort of humans uh, calculating time from ages upon ages, um, right? But it's it's the moon um, that's, that sort of structures the idea of uh, of the month, right? So, you know, how do you, how do you have that, you know, lesser than a year, but more um, than a week, more than a day, um, cycle and so the you know the the ancient calendars are lunar calendars which then all do some kind of game um depending on the calendar to sort of right keep up um uh uh with the solar calendar right um because uh the lunar calendar 
um, uh, our cycle creates a year that's 354 or 55 days, um, depending. Uh, and so then, you know, you've got to you've got to play with those extras um, uh, and, you know, on every couple of years, add in another month um, to make your sort of festivals end up in about the right place. Um, so what we see is um, in, in human history is this this interesting transition from, uh, you know, these these sort of true lunar calendars into the sort of solarization of um uh calendrical month systems um so that they sort of retain the names of old lunar months um but then sort of lock them into um the more stable um you know 365 um point etc um solar year so that's you know that's this this important roman reform that happens with um uh, julius caesar and that's the sort of like the the famous and important kind of you know beginning of what we accept as, you know, that, that our sort of like human annual time should be divided in months, that these months should feel stable, um, uh, and that they're going to sort of correspond to, um, uh, to the year. So, you know, the Julian calendar then becomes, you know, the sort of standard um, in that in that Roman world, um, and remains in use, uh, right. And again, <laughs> something that people usually don't think about into um you know the 16th century right that that gregorian calendar that we now think of takes a long time um to actually to actually come about um and the reason or one of the big reasons is because you know in that julian calendar you have um what i like to call sort of solar drift where um you know you're losing a little bit of a day um uh every year and so the the problem is that the 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 equinoxes started to sort of drift um off of um you know and especially the spring equinox which is so important um starts to drift off of the month of march um uh in the roman calendar mm -hmm. and you know peak into april and all of a sudden like that's that's a problem that's got to be um that's got to be reformed so that's the sort of big um roman contribution to that that cycle if i could add yeah so before caesar exactly as you said like the months are linked to the more the lunar calendar. And so you have to add extra days or an extra month. Right. But that's a political decision. Like you need yeah. to have political authorities like actually do it and enforce yeah. it. Yeah. And if you have political gridlock yeah. or chaos as the century before Caesar, this doesn't get done. Right. Right? right. So like today we're used to living with political dysfunction where like things that need to get done aren't done. Imagine if this involved the calendar. Right. Right. And it just kind of gets all out of whack and you're having your spring festivals and right. like, winter. Right. Well, this I mean, this is this is the chaos. I mean, we still live with this in, in terms of daylight savings time. Right. Yes. And and and, uh, you know, and it is there is no logical reason why we can't sort of solve this problem. You know, daylight savings time in the United States remains yes. deeply unpopular um across the aisles um yes. uh and yet you know it suddenly becomes uh mired in political gridlock when you actually yes. um actually want to change it one of my one of my favorite similar anecdotes um uh i think this comes in in the the sixth century historian procopius it's about it's about justinian um but there's one year and i don't think we agree on which year it is but i think it's around 553 um, for some reason, Justinian and his advisors, you know, he made the mistake, I guess, of like walking into the, the math council room or something. And and they all, you know, they all decide that, in fact, um, they'd gotten Easter off by a week. 
And so they're going to push Lent back by a week. And so they send out this sort of edict that like, hey, you guys can keep selling meat for another week. It's fine. But the people reject it and refuse to buy meat. So there's there's apparently, you know, this this like surplus of meat. No one's buying it. Butchers are mad. Justinian won't change his mind. And so um, uh, if I'm recalling the, the source correctly, right, I mean, it's something along the lines of, you know, and so there was chaos um, uh, through the entire celebration of, of um, Lent and Easter. Yes. Apparently they solved it the next year. But yeah, you know, these these you have these little moments where all of a sudden, right, the, the sort of the politics of time exposes itself. And then there's just this this sort of like human um, uh, human chaos in trying to agree, like, you know, can I have beef for dinner? Yes, there is a regulatory agency that's making sure that time runs on time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. E even then. Okay. Indictions. You got to tell us what that, what those gotta are. Got to go into the indictions. Yeah. So, I mean, to, again, to simplify, um, uh, right. So this is, this is a, um, established as a, as a tax cycle. Um, uh, it, uh, is a 15 year cycle. And, and so then sort of repeat. So kind of, you know, like the model of the, the Olympiads from before, which did the same thing on, um, you know, a four year cycle. So you would count Olympiads and say, this is the 382nd Olympiad year two. Um, the indiction cycles don't get numbered in terms of, you know, this is indiction cycle number 14, 346, something like that. But it's just this repeating um, uh, cycle of counting years. As you mentioned before, it begins on September 1. So that's, you know, sort of the beginning of the of the tax cycle um, uh, and then uh, and then repeats what I you know, the the, the period that I focus on. Um, uh, you know, the, the middle Byzantine period. So, you know, seventh, uh, eighth, ninth, 10 centuries. Um, what was interesting to me to discover in grad school was that the indiction cycle, which to me seems such a um, uh, difficult and unreliable way to calculate time was the sort of presumed stable way right. for Byzantine Romans to talk about time. Um, an example that, that sort of made me realize this was in the Chronicle of Theophanies, um, uh, the text has Charlemagne get crowned, uh, by the Pope in Rome, which, you know, we take to have happened in, um, 8,800, December 25, but it puts it twice in the text. Um, uh, and so there's this sort of debate on like, does Theophanes actually know when this happened? Um, uh, but what the key is, is yes, he does, because in both places, he gives the correct indiction year, you know, indicating that, and I can't remember which indiction it is, but saying, you know, this this happened in whatever indiction eight or something, even though he's putting it under the wrong year um, in his own sort of reckoning. And then when he gets to the right year, mm -hmm. um, uh, he he also indicates it and also indicates that he knows the indiction, which is his way of saying, you know, I know I know when that thing is. So the indiction, this 15 year cycle was um, uh, the sort of stable way of indicating a, sec a, a stable, you know, a single year in combination with which emperor is reigning at that time. Uh, you know, so you can say, um, you know, uh, third year of uh, Constantine the Great, um, uh, you know, the 12th indiction. And that's a sort of like an absolute way of um, uh, dating a specific year in this sort of Byzantine um, uh, Roman historical tradition. What's not stable, as you indicated, and which, again, I think is a really important point for, for people to realize, is that sort of more massive um, cosmological or global tally of years. Um, you know, you mentioned that uh, there's there's a couple of what we might call, you know, Byzantine Roman systems uh, of counting from creation. 
you know, uh, one of them is, is, you know, creation is 5492. Um, another is creation is, um, you know, 5500 or sorry, um, from, from creation to, um, the incarnation of Christ is 5492 years or 5500 or, um, you know, 5708 or 5709, um, uh, becomes a sort of the Byzantine era. But this isn't this isn't stable um, uh, for for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. The Chronicon Pascale that I mentioned earlier, um, it's sort of universal system. It goes back to Olympiads um, uh, uh, humorously, right? As as its its way of of doing big subdivisions. So even after you know this guy Dionysus the Lesser um, in the West, you know that takes a long time to get adopted in the West as some sort of like stable count of when is eighty one, and then in our um, you know uh, Roman Byzantine East. Um, you know, there's also this, um, you know, not a reliance on a universal tally of years, but rather a reliance on these uh, ongoing cycles and successions of indictions and reigns of kings and emperors in order to establish, you know, when when time, what time we're actually in at any moment. Yeah. So a full date would look something like, you know, 12th of May, indiction number, whatever. Um, so the number being that year of the 15 year cycle, right? then date from creation, you know, 6,000 and whatever, and you could fill that out with year, whatever of the emperor of that time. Yeah. And, you know, as historians, we, we love those dates. I mean, it's based on those that we worked out the chronology of, you know, Byzantine history, because, um, I, I did an episode um, with Richard Callis on Crucius, uh, 16th century, was yeah. like trying to figure out the basic chronology by yeah. really relying on these kinds of indicators. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it wasn't worked out yet. And it, it, it we're, we're still trying to work out some things, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's that, it's that making of time that I think is so interesting and exciting about this, about yeah. this topic for, um, you know, for thinking about the past. And again, even, you know, recent centuries past, um, the time has to be actively constructed, um, that, you, that you actually have to sit down with um, uh, implements and tools and a bunch of different texts and try to work out um, when something was, uh, you yeah. know, we just, we don't bother with that chronology anymore. Uh, occasionally, I really like to get into dating exercises, like... I don't know. I think they're kind of, it's like a de little detective exercise. Um, and sometimes you're like, okay, let's work out the date. <laughs> and sometimes you can't. Um, but occasionally I, I, I find it a fun distraction anyway. And, and sometimes they're very, very important. Um, yeah. Yeah. And recently some events have been redated, uh, pretty dramatically, like the, the, the first major siege of Constantinople, for example. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And your author, Theophanes, made a complete mess of this. <laughs> he did. And I'm glad that it's been cleared up um, because it really affects how you interpret all kinds of other things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think we had a much more ambitious plan of what we could get done in about 50 or whatever minutes. But why don't we wrap up? Um, tell us a few of the more interesting developments that happen in late antiquity with regard to time. Like just pick a couple and and we'll, we'll close there. I this is a topic on which we can say so much, but I, I think that it's been interesting for the audience to see the nitty gritty of all these different systems that we work with and have to work with. Yeah. Uh, so tell us some of the interesting late antique developments. Yeah. 
I would say I might I might try and focus on one <laughs> and and sort of talk about its its um, its implications. Um, so, you know, late antiquity, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, uh, say, let's say, second century A.D. to um, eighth or ninth century um, A.D. Uh, one of the um, uh real drivers of change in the meaning of these calculations of time is uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, um, both because his synthesis is so comprehensive. Um, so Eusebius um, lays out in his um, chronicle uh, a synthesis of, you know, these um, time regimes that we've been talking about, these political time regimes. Um, he calculates decades according to um, the life of Abraham, so decades since Abraham, um, and then the, the lines of kings of all these different um, kingdoms and peoples, and sort of shows their, you know, has them all come together at the time of Augustus Caesar, um, which also happens to be the time of the birth of Christ, and, and sort of shows this, this unification to time. Um, that, I think, uh, is a, a sort of like, you know, a hook for what what really changes in um, uh, especially the northern Mediterranean world in this period, which is the the coming together of um, uh, the sort of Christian story or Christian synthesis with uh, these you know political um, regimes, these Roman times, Greek times um, that had existed before. And it's not that that sort of Christian time fundamentally changed, you know, anything about, about the calculations, but it gave a different um, way of thinking about um, the meaning of time. So, mm. you know, Eusebius is writing um, as Constantine is, is sort of <laughs> imperializing, re-imperializing Rome, right? Like taking Rome um, away from uh, the sort of, you know, collegial system of rule that Dionysius had established, re-established, or sorry, um, uh, Diocletian had established, re-establishing you know, rule by one emperor over over the entire empire. You know, and then as we know, Christianity plays a key role in this um, in this move. Uh, one of the things that that Constantine does uh, when he calls together all the Christian bishops in the Council of Nicaea, right, is is not just demand on unity of doctrine, not just demand on on unity of text, but demand on a unity of time. Um, right, he wants the bishops to figure out when is Easter. So, in addition mm -hmm. to having theological debates, they've got to bust out their calculators and have a math debate, um, uh, you know, on week three of the Council of Nicaea and agree on like, when are we going to celebrate Easter? Because, you know, Rome needs a religious unity, um, right? Yep. To be an empire, you've got to have a unifying feast. Um, and so, you know, if it's going to be Christianity, then the feast has to be Easter. And so mm -hmm. we've got to figure that out. And it's that that move to sort of conjoin uh, the traditions of, of Roman imperial time with the Christian cycle that then sort of fundamentally, I think, adds these, these you know, what we would now think of as sort of like medieval flavors or medieval colors to, um, you know, the ancient systems of temporal reckoning um, moving forward into the Middle Ages. What I think is so cool um uh and interesting that that does for all sorts of of uh historical thinking is it it brings in this idea of um uh typologies um and this this actually gets at the um the thing that you were you were referring to with with Dionysius 
um, and thinking about the relationship between, you know, the date of the incarnation, the date of Easter, and then all the way back to the date of creation, um, there enters this, this possibility that, you know, as these cycles re repeat, um, we're also kind of, you know, reliving these key moments um, of, uh, uh, you know, sort of divine yeah. history of the relationship between um, God and mankind. And this interlocks um, with, uh, for instance, the indiction cycle in a really nice way. So you know, in the um, Byzantine Roman cycle, right, your indiction starts with September 1 um, and then goes all the way to August 31. But that also tracks with um, the sort of religious festivals of the church where, you know, you're beginning with the birth of the Theotokos, with the mother of God, and then sort of interwoven in that, then you have the sort of, you know, the, the festal cycles of, of Jesus the Christ. Um, which are interwoven, so you know, Christmas or Nativity, and then um, Resurrection in the spring. But then the year actually ends with um, the Dormition of uh, the, the Mother of God. Um, you know, her her falling asleep or her her death, um, and then sort of that closes out the year. So you have this amazing conjunction yeah. between, like, as you're celebrating your sort of you know common religious life, you're also um, uh, you know participating in the sort of tax cycle. Um, uh, of of the imperial year, um, which is I like to tell my students, you know, if we like to say, um, you know, the only things sure are our death and taxes um, for the Byzantine Romans, um, it might be taxes and resurrections yes. um, are the are the things that you can you can count on. But I think that's you know that's really something that um, that happens in that sort of late antique synthesis of um, sort of Christian um, Christian practices with um, Roman imperial domination um, that then creates all of these possibilities for, you know, um, different temporal regimes that mean different things um, to spread through the Middle yeah. Ages. That is very, very well put. And it, it bears stressing that, and, and I've read a lot of scholarship along these lines, that, that this whole system of organizing time was also a way of so recreating or re-experiencing certain events as if they're always present, especially the yeah. ones of religious significance. Yeah. Um, and it kind of puts you back into the moment where you're experiencing it anew and again, but it's always there. Um, anyway, and, and this, this is a fascinating part of the culture. And I'm glad that you mentioned also the liturgical uh, cycle that was also superimposed on all of this. Right. Right. Um, and a little thing about the liturgical cycle. So obviously, yes, you have the major celebrations of the church and so on. Um, I'm fascinated by the aspect that um, each day, you know, there are a number of saints that yeah. are celebrated um, yeah. and your your saint's name, like your, 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 your name is linked to that of a saint. So your name day is way more important than your birthday um yeah. in 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 these cultures and in some of these cultures this doesn't change until like the 21st century like now yeah um so each day is a day that's dedicated to a saint that is special to you know people you know and you know you you mention that to them and this is your name day and yeah um it's not a birthday that that's that's a completely different uh um i don't even know where that comes from but anyway um, yeah, name days. When I was growing up, name days were the thing. Birthdays were sort of secondary. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. And it has this. It has this sort of like uh, really fascinating implication. I think where I mean exactly if you think of it in terms of an, an opposition or an alternative to a birthday, where instead of sort of like repeating yourself, um, you're, yes. you're kind of becoming exactly. this fulfillment, a fulfillment in the present 
of this person who you've been yeah. sort of tagged to yeah. um uh, from the past but you're this sort of you know whoever um you're you're a, you're a new you're a new john um you know you're a new um isaiah um uh okay. who's sort of you know then sort of you become uh the them that's remembered um on that day which i think you know really gets to um uh, i'm glad you brought up that example because it, it really gets to how when you start to indwell and think through these different human experiences of time and and allow yourself to to sort of open your imagination to them it really does then start to change how you read these sort of yeah. you know texts mm -hmm. and sources that are are left to us because it's no longer just what you're referring to you say that like the synexarian um uh, these sort of collections of of you know a complete annual cycle of of remembered saints it's not just <laughs> remembering saints it, it's a way of people in the present understanding themselves right uh having having an identity having having a meaning um yeah. uh to their their life's journey and this is how the cyclical and the linear are interwoven in the system and the cyclical is literally cyclical and and we don't think of it this way but it is that it brings you back to that same moment where you relive it again and again and again whereas the linear is taking you in some direction and they had both the direction being presumably the end of the world at some point. <laughs> and they had different ways for calculating it. But I will end this on something that I think all Byzantinists mentioned at some point in their class, that yeah. one of the last sort of most dominant calculations for the end of the world was in what corresponds to our year 1492. Uh, because this was the year 7,000 from creation and the idea being that the world would last for I think it was seven weeks understood as a thousand years each or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and of course, 1492 is something completely different in world history, but nevertheless, still very yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so we'll end there with the end of the world at the beginning of the new world. Um, thank you, Jesse. This this was a lot of fun. And, and there are not many people I could have had this conversation with. Um, so I'm glad you agreed to do this. Or you proposed the topic, actually. So there you go. You're very welcome and thanks so much for having me. Take care.